This is the Weather Lounge here at Weatherworks. Hi there, everyone, and welcome back to the Weather Lounge here at Weatherworks. I'm your host, meteorologist Brad Miller, and I would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to our weather podcast. And joining me as always here in the Weather Lounge is the one, the only, meteorologist Mike Mahalik. Hey there, Mike. Hey, Brad. How's it going? Hey, we're into uh, spring now. It's time for some spring sports, right? Yeah, we are full force into spring. Uh, you know, baseball season started uh, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of weeks ago. We're, uh, you know, brushing off the golf clubs. I already got a couple of rounds under my belt, but uh, oh, I'm sure we'll have plenty you. more to go. But uh, yeah, you know, things are starting to spruce up and uh, it's that time of the year where you get really excited to get outside and do, uh, do a lot more things. You know, it's funny when it, it's, it turns into spring. It's when even it gets a little bit warm, like maybe like 55, 60 degrees, <laughs> like you like throwing the windows down in the car, yeah. you're doing it. I feel like it's the total opposite in the fall. Yeah. In the fall, you're, you know, it gets down to like 60 degrees and you're like, oh man, give me a coat, give me a sweatshirt. You know, <laughs> I, th- I think it's a whole you know different mindset. Uh, spring, you know, spring, you're thinking, all right, well, I got a, you know, I got six months here to do some outdoor stuff. You know, the fall's okay. I like that first fall, crisp, cool snap. You know, it lasts about two weeks. Clocks go back, and you're like, oh well, you know, fall, and then you're like, oh, here comes winter. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, we're here to talk about springtime. Um, you mm-hmm. know, we're going to transition into spring. We're going from uh, snow and cold into more of a severe weather and kind of a lightning weather kind of setup here going into uh, the next few months. And, uh, you know, that's that's what we're going to talk about here on our uh, next podcast here. Yeah. And uh, in this podcast, we're going to have another guest on the show. And uh, this is meteorologist Rob Real uh, here at Weatherworks. Not only one of our uh, good golf buddies, he's also uh, the director of meteorological services for Weatherworks, which entails a lot of weather education for our staff. Yeah, he, he wears a lot of uh, a lot of hats at Weatherworks, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, but uh, basically, you know, I, I just wanted to kind of pick his brain a little bit about, mm-hmm. you know, some severe weather setups, some flooding setups, um, and basically how um, Weatherworks transitions from the winter months into the spring season. So uh, a lot of things start changing here, and, and right. Brad kind of, and uh, I'm sorry, Rob kind of you know, spearheads that initiative to get all of our meteorologists back on track. So, you know, Brad, I think, I think we ought to go to break now and then after yeah, the break. Yeah, yeah. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll be back mm-hmm. here in a few minutes. Uh, very interested uh, to uh, hear from Rob, that's for sure. So uh, we'll do that right after this break. Again, you're listening to the Weather Lounge here at Weatherworks. Stay with us. Have you ever needed weather data for a snow removal contract? How about a slip and fall incident? Searching for the information online may sound simple enough, however, it can be tedious and difficult. Good news! Our data and stats team can simplify the process. We'll find any weather information from daily rainfall and snowfall totals to hourly temperatures and seasonal averages. On the legal side, our forensic department routinely produces certified reports by meteorologists, assessing the weather conditions on and around accident dates. So don't waste your valuable time. Give WeatherWorks a call today at 908-850-8600 or email us at data at weatherworksinc.com. Remember, when you think weather, think WeatherWorks. Welcome back to the Weather Lounge. I'm meteorologist Mike Mahalik, and I'm here with Brad Miller, as always, my co-host. Our guest today is meteorologist Rob Reel here at WeatherWorks, Director of Meteorological Services. And Rob, I think you're on the line now, and uh, welcome to the Weather Lounge. We're good. Thanks for having me. This is my podcast debut. 
for any <laughs> podcast. It's a big day for me. And I think this means I made it, right? Like I'm kind of a big deal all of a sudden. Um, you're, I think that's what that means. Um, <laughs> it's like a big Iron deal. Manilow song. Looks yeah. like we made it. Now, <laughs> now I do. Let me interrupt you real quick because correct me if I'm wrong. This is just one of many Weather Lounge podcasts that you've done, correct? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. 100%. However, this is the first time that I've been invited on said podcast. Is that also correct? I think that he's trying be... to put a guilt trip on us. I'm hey, just hey, like, I'm not, I want to get my facts straight. I'm not mad. I guess I'm just disappointed. That's all. Now, Rob, okay. in our defense, though, in our defense, you are the, only the second guest from Weatherworks behind our CEO and president, Frank Lombardo. It's a, it's a consolation, uh, I <laughs> no. suppose, but it, it doesn't make it right. Is all you I'm know saying. what? I got to burst that bubble because we did have uh, Sherilyn on uh, with oh, our forensic yeah, you're right, you're right. Oh, and no. we also had the names Zach are going to keep on. filling up. Who and Jim, and Jim too. <laughs> and we did have Jim on our long range oh, expert. So um, all right. So Rob, you're really like the fifth ish person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. All right, all right, all right. Well, let's start, Rob, with um, a little bit about you. You know, a lot of okay. our listeners out here, you know, want to get to know you a little bit better. You know, where'd you start with where you went to school, where you got your education? Um, let's go from there. Yeah, sure. I mean, a couple of different aspects. I always loved snow growing up in Northwest New Jersey, and we saw quite a bit of it up there. Um, also spent a lot of my time at the beaches. Uh, a lot of fishing, a lot of surfing. So wind and weather and all that stuff plays a big impact. Um, so that was sort of where my interest sparked. Uh, I stayed local to New Jersey. I went to school and got my degree at Rutgers. While at Rutgers, I interned with Weatherworks and shortly after graduation, back in 2010, I'm getting old, I'm getting gray. Um, and uh, you know, the rest is history. Like Mike alluded to before, uh, the title is Director of Meteorological Services. Uh, it kind of means I do a lot um, and help really oversee the overall meteorological um, operations of our mm -hmm. company. So that includes some recruiting and hiring and training of the staff. It includes some managing and updating of our products and some scheduling. So really my end goal is to make the company as good as possible um, from a meteorological standpoint to make sure that our product is as good as possible for our clientele and make sure that they're getting the best weather forecast and the best weather information that they can get. And that's a huge role um, in this company. We're always trying to, you know, better our services. You know, we don't want to just stay stale. You know, we want to uh, keep up with the new, um, you know, new practices of how to forecast the weather and new strategies. So um, Rob, you know, does a great job. So now that we have a little background about you, Rob, and we know that we're, you're into the weather education side of things, let's just head right into spring because we talk about the winter weather. We're, we're very heavy into the winter weather uh, at Weatherworks. Um, but going into spring, we still have a lot of responsibility there. And our clients are impacted by, you know, severe thunderstorms, flooding and all that kind of stuff. So why does that severe weather become much more prevalent as we head into the spring months? Yeah, I mean, I guess to, I don't know, as, as more of a broad scale picture, right? The weather is largely impacted by the jet stream and largely impacted by temperature gradients. And temperature gradients are basically where hot and cold air kind of meet up. That that makes it a sharper temperature gradient. And it's usually along those areas where kind of weather happens, right? Um, that's where you get big storms or a cold front comes through or something like that. It's the clashing of air masses that really helps drive the weather 
on a day-to-day and month-to-month basis. And in the wintertime, the jet stream and the temperature gradients, they kind of hang out in the U.S. And that's where we see a lot of those like synoptic, those widespread events where multiple states, if not an entire section of the country, is raining or snowing at once. Um, Now, as we transition into the spring, the jet stream and the temperature gradients slowly start to creep back north a little bit. And what we start to get is more of a hot and humid air mass influence. There's still some temperature gradients. There's still some dips in the jet stream. So we still get some active weather. But instead of cold active weather where we're focused on snow, it becomes a warmer active weather where we're focused on severe weather um, and just rain and flooding in general. So really a lot has to do with where you're getting temperature gradients and where air mass is colliding. That's where you're getting weather. And like we were getting at before, in the wintertime, snow is the concern. In the summertime, severe weather and flooding are the concern. It seems like in the spring, we have a lot more overlap between spring and winter weather versus as we transition from fall into winter. Yeah, I know we can get some snow early in the winter or even late fall, but it seems like it's almost like night and day in the spring where we could be 60 degrees and then the next day we could be forecasting snow and then back to maybe thunderstorms somewhere just a couple of days later. So again, is that because of the, I I guess that's mainly because the transition is is a little more rapid, I guess, in the spring, or it just uh, just seems like there's so much more activity uh, in the March, April timeframe versus like in October, November, December timeframe. Yeah. I mean, things, things bounce around a little bit more, right? It's, if you think of, of the atmosphere as a big fluid and this kind of like windy road sort of deal, mm-hmm. that's sort of what happens with the jet stream, right? It kind of goes up and down and depending on where you're at, might be on the warm side or the cold side. And and yeah, in the wintertime, we're kind of just generally cold. In mm-hmm. the summertime, we're kind of just generally hot. And those transition months, particularly the spring, more so than the fall, is right. kind of where you go from warm to hot to war, or warm to cold, warm to cold. And then eventually it just becomes, in the summertime, warmer, hot, warmer, hot. So Right. And even this year was a good example. Just a few weeks ago, I mean, end of March, we had some 65 to 70 degree weather here yeah. in the Northeast. April and then Fools, right? April Fools, yeah. We, were, we had snow across parts of the interior Northeast, you know, the mountains and stuff. And uh, and the days, you know, a couple of days before that, it was uh, it was beautiful, and and you know, and then we bounced back to nice weather towards like Easter weekend. So it's just a, you know, that that's the kind of yeah ups and downs, I guess, especially here in the Northeast. But I guess the same thing in the Midwest. Yeah, and it's also it's really noticeable in the spring too, because like the winter, a lot of times it's the difference between being cold and really cold, and the summer right. it's the difference between being hot and really hot. But the spring, you know, the difference between. 50 and 70 is a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's not even necessarily that the temperatures fluctuate that much more in the swing in the spring. It's just that it feels so much different and the sun Mm -hmm. becomes so much more important and has such a bigger influence than it did in the wintertime. So when it's sunny and 70, it feels way different than when it's cloudy and 50 out. So that that's part of it too. It's yeah, there's definitely a lot going on in the spring, but it also, it's like that kind of sensible feel. I think our bodies are just adjusting to the changing. Mm -hmm. Of the, of the air masses. So, Rob, let's get right into it, though. When we're talking about severe threats heading into the warm season, what are the ingredients that we need for severe weather here? And, you know, we're based in the Northeast, so that might change a little bit throughout the country. But if you can kind of go through that a little bit, and that might help yeah. some of our listeners out there. I mean, sure. So, so to get a thunderstorm, period, there's kind of like three basic ingredients, which is moisture, instability, and lift. What do I mean by moisture? Well, in kind of the simplest way would be 
the more moisture near the surface, so the higher the dew points, kind of those sticky days, that's kind of ingredient one. And if you think about it, right, how often do you get a thunderstorm when it's like dry or cool out? Not that common. But when it's hot and humid, you're probably walk outside and you could pretty much be a meteorologist and be like, I bet there's going to be a thunderstorm today and half the time there is. So moisture would be uh, sort of the first ingredient. And that's also why you get a lot more thunderstorms in the summer than the winter has to do with the increased moisture and humidity, particularly near the surface. The second thing I said was instability. So instability in kind of more of a meteorological term would be the amount of CAPE, which is the convective available potential energy. C-A-P-E. It's a term that you'll probably hear sometimes. Um, It basically quantifies how much energy there is for a storm to develop or strengthen. So the more unstable the atmosphere is, the more volatile it is, and the higher the chance there is going to be for actual thunderstorm activity. While if it's more stable and there's less instability, less cape, then there's going to be a less chance for thunderstorms just because the atmosphere isn't ripe for that. So we got moisture, we have instability, and the last thing would be lift. Lift is sort of like some kind of forcing that drives little air parcels upwards. And what happens when air parcels get lifted is they condense into water droplets and essentially you get weather. So those three things, moisture, instability, and lift, are the three things to get a basic thunderstorm. A lot of times that extra ingredient that you need is called wind shear. So you get all of those ingredients, you get the thunderstorm, and then the wind shear, which is essentially a wind gradient thinking from the surface upwards through the atmosphere. So it might be like 10 miles per hour near the surface. It might be like 20 miles per hour, a couple thousand feet in the sky. And then it might be like 50 miles per hour once you get like a couple miles up in the sky. And that gradient from 10 to 20 to 50 miles per hour is called wind shear. And when you have enough of that, not only do you get the thunderstorms from the moisture instability and lift, the shear helps those storms organize and maintain themselves. And that's when they can take on those more severe characteristics. That's a good overview of everything. I want to kind of swing back to the initial setup, though, because we talked about moisture and cape. There was, I mean, how many days sometimes where you just have such a soupy air mass, but nothing happens? Yeah. Sure. We're missing uh, the lift, or I like to call it the trigger mechanism Yep. Um, to basically light up the ma- atmosphere like a match. Um, so what are those kind of trigger mechanisms that will force those thunderstorms to form because there's sometimes I'm waiting there and it's 90 and humid. I'm like, Oh, I wish there was a thunderstorm right now (laughs) and and nothing goes on. So what, what does force those? Yeah. And it's a good point is, is you need moisture, instability and lift. Notice I said, and not, or, um, you kind of need all three and some examples of lift or forcing or a trigger, whatever you want to call it. Um, a common one would be a front. Those collision of air masses that we talked about before and one of the driving factors in day-to-day weather is frontal boundaries and where you kind of have warm air meeting up with colder air. Uh, so a cold front's a really common one, um, which is kind of more of an obvious one. And sometimes that's where you get these widespread thunderstorm days that are also somewhat severe. Sometimes it's a little bit more subtle than that, too. It could be little sea breeze boundaries. You're at the beach. uh, It might start off in the 80s, and all of a sudden it drops into the 70s because the sea breeze moves through. Well, eventually, a couple miles inland from the beach, it's still going to be 90, meeting, you know, kind of colliding with 70-degree weather. That's a front. It's this little sea breeze front that happens just about every day at the beach that you may or may not notice. But sometimes even something as subtle as that 
can cause lift or be that trigger to thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times it's, it's these little subtle boundaries or little subtle fronts that help spark the convection and then you do get the thunderstorms. And sometimes that's all you need to really get even numerous then storms because like Mike was saying, even you light a match or it's almost like dominoes. You get that first one yep. and then it actually can produce other storms. One dies out and then the outflows and maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, it, well, that well, creates was, other I- storms to develop. Yeah, Mike was just saying, he's like, hey, sometimes in those hot, humid days, I'm, I'm waiting for a thunderstorm. Why? Why do you say that? Because it's going to cool things down. It may still be a lot really humid, but it's going to feel a little bit better. But eventually, right? So you do get a thunderstorm in this one particular spot, and all of a sudden it goes from 90 to 70, but the town over, you know, still 90 degrees, Mike's house, 70 degrees. There's another little temperature boundary that just set up. This one was induced because of thunderstorms, but all of a sudden, like Brad was getting at too, these outflow boundaries of these cooler air from the rain-cooled air that just fell meet up with the still stagnant, hot human air masses, and sometimes that's enough to trigger another storm, and then it just kind of dominoes effect, and then you just keep going and going and going um, during the daytime and the afternoon when you have that peak heating. So yeah, that's another little subtle um, trigger is just the fact that there was a thunderstorm, it can help trigger other thunderstorms because you you kind of make their own temperature gradients next to each other. And I think um, what a lot of people need to know too is that the cold air is obviously, it's not well obvious to many, but it's more dense than uh, warm, moist air. So when that undercuts that warm, moist air, forces that forces air upward, upwards. Yeah you know, because it's kind of undercutting it there. So that's kind of what's happening too. So that's why the importance of that, you know, rain cool, cooled air is, is, is there too. So those are the basic, you know, elements that we need here, you know, to, to force, you know, the, the thunderstorms to develop. Um, but um, what makes those storms severe, Rob? You mentioned something about severe or uh, wind shear a little bit, um, but, but what kind of, you know, gives a normal thunderstorm and kind of pushes that normal thunderstorm over the edge into severe limits. Limits. Yeah, it, it's a complicated question because um, there's there could be a whole lot that goes into it. And I guess, you know, before we, we get there, there's sort of like <clears throat> three types of severe weather, right? You have gusty damaging winds would be one thing, which is the most common type of severe weather. Um, hail would be another form of severe weather that you can get as well. And then the least frequent, luckily, um, but obviously the most impactful and sometimes devastating would be tornadoes. So those are kind of the three types of severe weather. And they all share the same theme that you want, increased moisture, increased instability, and a better lift or trigger mechanism and better shear. And that was the other ingredient that, that I had mentioned before is you need all those thunderstorm ingredients plus wind shear. And kind of the more of everything that you have, the increased chance that you have for any given type of severe weather. Now, if we're getting a little more specific, what are some of the things that we're looking to get damaging winds? Well, it's it's a little interesting. We talked about before how how we're getting precipitation and weather and thunderstorms by rising air, by those mm-hmm. lifting mechanisms. So when you're talking about wind damage, though, you, you kind of have to think in opposite terms. How can we get air to sink really fast and kind of, you know, think about a thunderstorm. Um, you have all this really heavy rain. It creates this sort of sinking motion, right? It just makes sense that all this heavy rain droplets, if it's really, really heavy, is going to drag down all this air. And if the different atmospheric ingredients are kind of all aligned, what will happen is that downward push of air will eventually hit the ground and then it'll expand outward, right? Almost think of like 
a bomb, for instance, you have that visual where something falls and then you see that outward push of, of air and that's where you can get some damaging winds and that's what's called a downburst or a microburst. So that's how you get the damaging winds is, is from rapidly downward sinking air hits the ground and then you get this push outward that could produce those 40, 50, 60, 70 plus mile per hour wind mm. gusts. Now, more cape, more shear. And also what you want is dry air in the mid-levels because what happens is if you have dry air in the mid-levels, when it does start to precipitate, you get evaporation, uh, right? When you get, or I'm sorry, yeah, it evaporates and condenses. Um, that dry air goes away because now you're starting to precipitate and that has a downward effect and downward push of air. So it's getting a little more technical, but the short story is you want a lot of cape, you want a lot of shear, you want thunderstorms to be likely, and you want a little bit of extra dry air in the mid-levels to help push air downwards and increase that sinking motion. Good so far? Yeah, yeah. 100%. Now, you, we did touch upon tornadoes a little bit. There's a big difference uh, between tornadoes in the Northeast and tornadoes that may occur in you know, the Plain States or maybe the South. I mean, for example, not long ago, there was an EF4 tornado that hit Noonan, Georgia, and yeah. pretty much, you know, really destroyed things. And it's a lot more in the Northeast. I'm, I'm looking for the word here, Rob, but I mean, um, you know, it's more well-developed and maybe easier to pick out in the tornado alley and stuff like that than yeah. it is here in the Northeast. Um, maybe explain what's going on there a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, kind of tornado alley kind of is, is considered to be the plain states and, you know, Oklahoma and Kansas out there. Uh, and then the second tornado alley would be sort of the Southeast states, which includes Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia. And, and, and that secondary one in the Southeast is where we've had uh, a couple of, of outbreaks already this year. Um, in those two kind of tornado alley corridors, the atmosphere tends to get more ripe. You tend to get extra moisture. You get extra instability, extra lift. You get extra wind shear. All those ingredients that we talked about just in the right setup can align. And then you can get those big time tornadoes that not only, you know, are EF3s or EF4s with incredible wind speeds, but they also are longer tracked tornadoes. Right. They last over a very long distance. And part of the reason they do that, it, it, the only way to really do that is that you have really good lift and kind of forcing to help keep them going along. So you're not going to get that in just a, a stagnant, hot, and humid air mass. You're going to need all those ingredients that we talked about before to not only develop the thunderstorm and tornado, but to maintain it and allow it to track over 20, 30, 50 plus miles in some instances. So yeah. out there, they get, it's kind of, if you were to look at an atmospheric sounding, which is sort of like a profile of the atmosphere and one little snapshot looking down up, they call it a loaded gun sounding. Basically, it means that all the ingredients are there. All you need is a storm to pop and things are going to go downhill fast. They get those loaded gun soundings in the plains and in the southeast. But in the northeast, where we're more focused, we don't really get the same loaded gun sounding. A lot of our air masses, they typically just don't align and we don't quite get that same loaded gun. It doesn't take much to produce big time severe weather and tornadoes we kind of get a modified version of that in the Northeast states. And I think what makes it difficult too, since it is such a marginal setup a lot of times in the Northeast, when you're trying to pick out these tornado signatures on radar, um, they're much smaller. They're much more <laughs> um, compact in the Northeast and they don't last as long either. 
Um, so it, it's very difficult um, to get out that long lead time sometimes because these storms are, you know, very brief with their circulations. Whereas, you know, you're in the plains, you get this long track supercell, um, which a supercell is, you know, basically a rotating thunderstorm, uh, which can produce a tornado. And uh, it's so easy. It kind of looks like a hook on the radar. It's very easy to kind of pick it out and, and see where it's heading um in general i should say um, yeah yeah well, not easy but it's it's definitely more obvious or, or really more textbook right if you're gonna like yeah. look up what's a tornado or what's a supercell you're gonna see an example from tornado alley they're definitely not going to show an example of the northeast yeah. um because no. by no means is it like that classic textbook look 99 out of 100 times at least yeah yeah now yeah. now rob one other thing mike and i talked about this before i think in our uh, other severe weather podcast but how much does topography you know, lend to the Northeast uh, not having these these long range. And, and one thing we always talk about, and, and Mike and I covered this a little bit, was, you know, just because you live in the mountains doesn't mean you can't have a tornado. But again, you're not going to get those long track tornadoes in the Northeast, like you said, in the tornado alley yeah. areas and things like that, because probably, I guess it's a lot flatter and it's not really disrupting the, the flow, I guess. Uh, is that kind of a true statement, I guess? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think honestly, the bigger reason is just all the other ingredients just aren't quite as right. good in the Northeast. But topography, topography can certainly play a little bit of a role in there as well. Um, for a little bit of reference too, like, you know, Mike, Mike threw out EF4 tornado happened in Georgia. Um, you know, th those are the higher end kind of uh, tornadoes. The areas that we're covering in the Northeast, we haven't had an EF4 in a long time. I believe the last time we've even had an EF3 uh, close to where we forecast for our clients, I think was back in 2011. Um, wow. So, it, you know, a lot of the tornadoes that we get are are more of like EF1s, almost, EF, you know, EF1s, which, which have a, a wind scale of like 86 to 110 miles per hour. Maybe once a year, twice a year, we'll get an EF2 somewhere in this area that touches down for like a couple miles. It isn't a long-lived thing. EF2 would have winds of 111 to 135 miles per hour. But EF3s are above. They are few and far between in our air, our neck of the woods. By the time you're getting to EF3, by the way, you're talking 136 miles per hour or greater. Um, we don't mm. get a lot of those. While it's really not that difficult, given the, the, the right setup, for the plains or for the southeast states to get one. And like Mike said, um, there was an EF4 that went through Georgia. So, I mean, let's shift gears. I don't want to cu cut the severe discussion uh, short here because uh, uh, I know that that's very interesting to many people out there. But um, we also got to talk about flooding because flooding is... I don't know. It's a kind of like a sleeper severe <laughs> impactor <laughs> um, where maybe they don't consider it as... Maybe some people out there don't consider it as impactful to them, um, but it's one of the number one problems, I would say. Yeah, it almost <laughs> seems like every single year we see the same video of cars trying to drive through flooded out roads and things like that. And, and you, know, just, you can't, you just, you got to get it into people's minds. You, you don't do that. I mean, it doesn't take much water to move a car. Um, yeah, it, it's not as dramatic as turn around, don't drown, which obviously, you know, very much is, is a true statement. But a lot of times it's turn around, don't don't ruin your car or put yourself yeah. in, a, in a, a vulnerable <laughs> situation. Um, you know, that that's almost just as true um, or certainly more um, relatable um, as opposed to something as, as dramatic as turn around, don't drown, which, you know, certainly can happen in flooding situations. Um, but yeah, I mean, flooding, like you guys were saying, 
I think it does impact more people on a, a seasonal basis, especially in the Northeast where severe weather, um, like we're getting at certainly happens, but it's, it's generally more isolated and a little bit more toned down. I don't think that's the same thing for the Midwest and the Southeast states where, you know, severe weather and tornadoes are, are extremely, uh, a huge factor. I mean, there's tornado sirens, people are taking huge precautions out there. It really is a different world and, and severe weather by, you know, by all means is, is, is probably more impactful than flooding in those tornado alley areas. But when you get to the Northeast, obviously severe weather is a factor. It is important. We want to make sure we're on top of it and we want to be aware of it. But I think on a, on a more tangible feel, I think more people experience flooding more often in the Northeast than they do severe weather. Um, and, you know, flooding can happen in multiple different ways. It could be the, the basic poor drainage and roadway flooding where it rains really heavy and it over it basically overwhelms the drainage systems that are in place and sort of builds up in ponds on the roads. And eventually you get a couple inches or in some cases that are more extreme, a couple of feet of water buildup on a road. Mm. And obviously that can be, can be really hazardous. Another type of flooding would be streams and creeks, which tends to be a little less frequent than just the poor drainage roadway flooding. The streams and creeks are a little less frequent, but they can be a little bit more severe where you have those, I don't know, think of like a five to 20 foot wide stream or creek um, in the area. And sometimes you don't even notice them. Sometimes they're just little like gullies alongside of a road that have little to no water buildup. But if those become overwhelmed, you get a couple inches of rain real quick, those can overflow. And because more water gets channeled in those streams and creeks, wherever that kind of meets up with a roadway or person's property can cause some pretty significant damage as well in terms of flooding. So we have poor drainage and railway flooding, we have streams and creeks, and then we have the major river flooding, which is the rarest of the flooding. But then we're talking about rivers that are, are humongous that, that can cause big time issues. But luckily, that's that's the kind of the most rare form of flooding. So those are the three types that we usually break in categories. Like we said, hey, there's there's wind damage, hail damage, and tornadoes with severe weather. With flooding, there's poor drainage, railway flooding, there's streams and creeks flooding, and then there's major river flooding. With the freshwater flooding, which is what Rob just talked about, what kind of goes into that? What makes that setup worse? Um, basically, what what makes it uh, more impactful if you're going to get a flooding day like that? Yeah, I mean, again, you can get that that basic poor drainage roadway flooding with almost any thunderstorm, right? It rains heavy enough. Um, you get a quick inch, inch and a half in 30 minutes or an hour or whatever. And yeah, you're going to have some ponding and it might be a little bit treacherous, but nothing crazy. It's something that Florida sees, what, every day in the summer. And you never hear about major flooding issues because it's generally minor and the soil down there can handle the rain and so on and so forth. Um, when you get those worse than normal flooding days, a lot of times it's where thunderstorms focus in a particular area for a longer time than normal. And a lot of times that happens along our, our friends that we've been talking about, those frontal boundaries. A lot of times mm -hmm. if there's a frontal boundary that's sitting in the same area, that's going to be the source for convection and the source for longer lasting thunderstorms. And it's when you get those thunderstorms that sit over the same place for, for one hour or three hours or whatever it is, instead of just getting that quick one inch of rain that causes nuisance issues, you get three or four or five inches of rain, which causes mm -hmm much greater impacts and more significant flooding issues. Yeah. And that's more of the training situation that we like to call it in the yep. meteorological industry. 
you know, yep. where these, like you're explaining, those storms kind of go over the same areas and one after the other, uh, and it just keeps adding up. And also, it's not only where the storms are training, it's it's actually, you know, the the actual geography of the place. Is it more of urbanized or is yep. it more rural that makes the flooding situa- situation worse? And basically, the, the urbanized areas, you know, you have a lot of things that are paved um, rather than just grass areas. So the water basically has nowhere to soak into the ground. So it just runs off and um, collects in, in these drainage ditches and overwhelms things. And that's where you do get um, a lot of those flooding issues. I mean, one example is uh, northeast New Jersey, right, Rob? Oh, definitely. I mean, the 95 corridor in general way more prone to flooding in any given day than 30 to 50 miles to the northwest where it's more rural um there's less infrastructure so yeah you know that's a good point too is that flooding is most prone where we're most populated right so um that that certainly tend kind of kind of feeds into the reason why i think flooding is a little bit more tangible and we experience it a little bit more is because we're literally putting ourselves in harm's way, so to speak, we're, we're, we've basically built an infrastructure where flooding is going to be more prone just because of how the land has been developed. And we didn't get to coastal flooding yet. I, I don't know if we will or not, but there's another instance where we're putting ourselves in harm's way, right? It's really nice to have these beachfront properties, but it also makes you really, really vulnerable. Well, let's go right into that, Rob, coastal flooding. I mean, I know um, you're a big beach nut for uh, (laughs) the New Jersey shore there. (laughs) Um, And uh, I know you're big into fishing too. Um, So you're really into the coastal areas and and the impacts there. So let's go over that a little bit. So what creates the coastal flooding? Is it just the tides or is there more to that? Yeah, no, there's there's a lot to it. Um, I guess the basic thing you you need is, is... it's really how high the tides are getting. And on any given day, the height of the high tides and low tides are going to fluctuate. Basically, um, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with going to the beach, but some of you may not be. Um, and you'll hear the term high tide and low tide. And what that has to do is is really the moon actually impacts the tides and the gravitational pull. So what you'll have, especially in, it's not always this, but for at least the East Coast and, and for New Jersey area and New England and the Mid-Atlantic, there's typically two high tides a day and two low tides a day. So right off the bat, if you're going to have coastal flooding, you're, you need higher than normal water. So you're more prone to have coastal flooding at a higher tide than a lower tide. So that's sort of like one thing. Um, and how high those tides are on a given day does fluctuate too. It's not like the same height every single day of the year, depending on the gravitational pull of the moon will dictate because some tides through the course of the year are higher than others. So right off the bat, those higher than normal tides, and uh, there's actually a term for the highest astronomical tide, naturally occurring tide through the year. It's called the king tide. King tide, Um, yeah. Yeah, and right off the bat, if you're at a high tide and you're at a particularly higher than normal high tide, your risk for coastal flooding will be a little bit more increased. Now, that alone won't cause issues. It's when you start to increase the surge, basically pushes up the water levels higher than they should be. It's the surge that starts to cause issues. How do you get surge? Well, there's a couple different ways. The basic way would be a constant onshore wind where the wind is pushing in from the ocean and it constantly is in the same direction over a long area and a long duration and it builds up water. It doesn't allow the oceans and the bays to recede water naturally. It kind of just slowly and surely builds them up. So that's one way to increase surge. 
Another way would be with some sort of low pressure system that maybe if there, you know, particularly happens in a, a tropical uh, cyclone or a hurricane, that adds like an extra push of water just from the sheer, sheer size and impact of that storm. That's going to add surge to your area as well. So those are sort of the two basic ingredients would be increased wind coming from the water and some sort of low pressure, particularly a tropical cyclone that also pushes more water towards the land. Those things make up the surge. And if those things are happening at a high tide, that you're already a little bit more vulnerable than normal, that's where you get the coastal flooding. And obviously, I mean, people in the Northeast can certainly think about Sandy Sandy, yeah. and about how large of a storm that was and, and, and how much water was being pushed in from that constant onshore wind uh, when that storm was making that, you know, left turn directly into the East Coast. And with that storm too, Mike, you know, Obviously, that was um, particularly for the New York City area and, and, and a lot of New Jersey, really one of the most devastating storms in, ter- in terms of uh, storm surge. Um, but what you may not have realized or may not, have, you know, you probably didn't if you weren't at the coast is that even 24 to 48 hours before Sandy ever made landfall, there was this, we call it this fetch, where basically the winds were from the northeast for a day or two ahead of, of time. And you weren't even really getting the impacts from Sandy itself yet. You were just getting that constant onshore flow. People were already experiencing coastal flooding before Sandy ever got there. So by mm. the time we got there, things were already primed. They were already kind of bad. And then Sandy made it that much worse with that extra push of water from the storm itself. So there was a couple different things going on. And for, for some, it wasn't just this you know, one day coastal flooding event, it was kind of like a three or four day coastal flooding event that had one really bad day on top of it. Hmm, I didn't even know that. Yeah. And then plus you also had the angle at which the storm made impact into the Northeast. It wasn't like a glancing blow where it was just grazing along the shoreline. It came directly perpendicular into the shoreline, which is basically maximizing your, you know, storm surge that you're going to get with that storm. Yeah, and, you know, the tropical really storms in general in the in the northern hemisphere will spin counterclockwise. If you're looking at a clock, think the opposite of how it's going. And if you're thinking about a storm moving in a direction, let's just say the storm's moving due north. Um, so you're getting kind of a push with the storm moving from south to north, and then you're also getting a counterclockwise spin around that motion. So if you're on the right side of the storm, to the north, not only are you getting that storm approaching your area pushing water, but that counterclockwise wind around the storm is kind of even more enhancing that push forward. So if you're in the northeast side of a storm, and particularly a hurricane, that's usually where the, the, the surge is the worst. And that's where mm-hmm. New York City was and most of New Jersey was in this storm. We were in the northeast side of that storm relative to where it was moving as it pretty much came from off the coast and it made a hard turn went right and made landfall around Cape May, Atlantic City. So anywhere just to the north of there is where it had the worst uh, worst surge and the greatest coastal flooding impacts. And I know we use Sandy here as an example here for the Northeast, but this happens anywhere, you know, uh, tropical storms uh, and hurricanes make landfall. I mean, one particular would be obviously Katrina down in New Orleans, mm. and that had the same sort of situation where, where that right uh, front quadrant just made that impact right uh, into New Orleans. And then obviously the levees broke and and everything else went downhill from there um, for yeah, New it, Orleans. It's the, the northeast side of these storms have the worst surge. And mm-hmm. it's usually 
the western side that has the heaviest rain usually. Yeah, and you know, it's funny and we talk about you talk about rain just there too. Uh, keep in mind that rain can exacerbate the situation too if you already have flooding, right, Rob? Yeah, I mean, you know, coastal flooding, I think a lot of people think of it as the ocean is overcoming the beaches and flooding onto the land. More times than not, that's not really how you get the coastal flooding, especially, you know, on the East Coast over the last 10, 20 years, we've really built up the dunes really well. So it's pretty tough to get flooding from the the beach over the dunes. If that happens, it's extremely bad, but it's pretty rare. And honestly, at this point, some of the highest points on any like a barrier island, for instance, tend to be like right along the beach. They tend to have the highest elevation. It might only be eight or 10 feet above sea level. Um, but that's not commonly how you get coastal flooding. More commonly, what happens is where you're lower in elevation, maybe you know where the roads are, your house is, is only a couple feet above sea level. What happens is they're drainage systems, right? And what will commonly happen is just the fact that the tides are increasing and the surge is increasing, the water has to go somewhere. So more commonly, it will almost come through the drains that we've created and you kind of get flooding from the ground up right. is, is the more common way you're actually going to get coastal flooding. It's not like the water is overflowing the beaches. That That's an extreme case, but on a more common scale, that does happen several times a year. In some instances, 20, 30, 50 times a year, depending on uh, where you're at and how vulnerable you are, it's kind of coming from the ground up. And like Mike was saying, if you're already getting coastal flooding where the, the drains are already backed up because the tides are higher, and then you have falling rain on top of that, where's it going to go? It's just going to kind of add um, insult to injury at that point. And that's where you can get even worse flooding is the combination of the coastal flooding in addition to the rain falling mm-hmm. on top of it. No, no, that's a, that's a good point there, Rob, because I lived in Charleston for several years in South Carolina and and we mentioned the king tides earlier, and we would have flooding. I mean, I didn't live in downtown, but there would be times where we would be under the king tide for a couple of days. And like you said, you would flood from the ground up. And there would be instances where roads were closed because yep. the influx of the seawater coming up out of the drainage areas. I mean, it would right around high tide, you'd be closed. Certain roads would be shut down. And these are susceptible roads that would happen almost all the time when this yep. flooding occurred. But they'd be shut down for two, three hours either side of high tide because of that. And it's just amazing that you think about that. And, and yeah, it's, you know, it, it even happens in, in New Jersey and in a lot of the coastal areas here in the Northeast. So it's, it's a perfect example. Yeah, I think that the term sometimes used is fair weather flooding, right? It could be sunny exactly. and beautiful it'd out. It could be sunny and it'd be, why, is the, <laughs> why is the road closed due to flooding? It hasn't rained in three yeah. days. And, and, you know, speaking of vulnerability before, you know, there's places that um, without any surge whatsoever, without that added water from the wind or from a, a low pressure coming, there's places that will natural, naturally reach flood stage just by being there on a day-to-day basis. Like we've right. built things in a vulnerable position that there will be flooding. And usually it's kind of nuisance and minor flooding in it. Like Brad was saying, it floods the same roads that are always used to it. Um, So you're kind of prepared and it just sort of becomes um, a cycle of life, but it doesn't take much on top of that to make it a lot worse. And we basically put ourselves in positions where you can get worse than normal flooding with not a lot of surge buildup just because of how vulnerable and, and, and how easy it is to get that um, just right off the bat. And, and that kind of brings us, I guess we'll, we'll wrap up with this uh, last uh, subject, but it, and it kind of goes along the lines of, of back bay flooding. Talk a little bit about that because that's something that 
only probably localized people would understand. And, and a lot of folks don't see, well, what's back bay flooding? I mean, if flooding's one thing, I mean, what, what does it mean to be have back bay flooding? Yeah, I guess, I mean, it's all kind of related, right? And, and again, I think just most people, and it makes sense, like you think of coastal flooding, you think of the ocean being crazy and water going onto the beach and then spewing into the town and whatnot. But a lot of times it either comes kind of up through the drains or the back bays that are kind of more channelized and secluded, the water builds up there and there you get flooding as well. And, you know, a lot of times too, the back bays and the communities around them are the closest to sea level. They're just not high up. There's no elevation there. So they end up on a guess on a more common basis, seeing that more nuisance to moderate flooding, they actually see more of it than the oceanfront properties itself. But it's when those big storms hit that the oceanfronts can can really see the brunt of it. So it's kind of like the back bays see more common flooding, but it's the oceanfront that would see the more extreme flooding, sure. I mean, kind of rare basis, uh, maybe on the order of one every 10 plus years, as opposed to the back bays and just some low-lying areas can see nuisance flooding 10 20 30 times a year let's start pivoting off that flooding issue i mean great great summary of everything rob let's talk a little bit about what we do to prepare you know, here at weatherworks for these severe weather threats into the summer yeah i mean a whole lot um you know we've really grown a lot in the last particularly 10 years. I mean, the company's been around since 1986. I started in 2010 there, you know, Mike was there at the time um, as well. Brad had mm -hmm. was still down in Charleston golfing it up, but uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we had maybe a, a dozen meteorologists at that point, And now we're at a staff of over 30 meteorologists. So we've grown a lot. And a lot of that has to do with the, the preparation that we take and the training that we implement before the season and during the season. So we're, we're, we're starting to get from that winter mindset to that green mindset, right? The green industry, meaning construction, paving, landscaping, mulching, growing grass, whatever. Um, so first and foremost, we want to make sure we're in that mindset. We want to make sure that our forecasts are always adding value. We're not just telling people there's a 30% chance of rain. We're talking about how it might impact them um, and help them plan out their day. Is that 30% chance in the morning? or they might have to start a little bit later uh, in the first couple hours might be a washout, or is it just a 30% chance for an afternoon sprinkle and it really won't affect whatever you're doing whatsoever. So first and foremost, we want to make sure our clients understand, can they do their day-to-day -day task? And if they can't, when can they at least get some of that work in still? So that's kind of an ongoing process. Usually it's in the months of March and April where we start to flip that mindset and start to really uh, kind of go green if you will. Um, yeah. Additionally, though, severe weather and flooding, whew, in uh, just a couple days from now, we are going to have, we've extended it. It used to be a one-day session, and then it was a two-day yeah. session. This year, uh, it's going to be a three- or four-day session where we're going to be going over general forecasting techniques, but we're going to go a lot over severe weather and flooding and all this information pertaining to the Northeast. So there's a whole lot of training and preparation that goes into uh into the season from a company standpoint and a whole lot that goes into each individual meteorologist as well. So we're fully prepared for whatever weather throws at us. Yeah. And I think our listeners just got a quick crash course <laughs> over yeah. the last, uh, you know, 30 minutes to 45 minutes about, yeah. you know, some of the things that we start to deal with uh, when we go into that. And I think a really good point that you made, Rob, is that we're just not putting out there the 30% the chance of rain. 
You know, we really tailor these forecasts to what those clients are actually doing. You know, you can get a 30% chance of rain anywhere, but if you're talking to one of our meteorologists uh, at Weatherworks, it's totally different because we're going to want to know, you know, what you're doing for the day, how sensitive it is to rain. Can you get away with a little bit of rain or not? And we'll tailor our um, consultation to those needs. Right. There may be a big difference between like a landscaper out there just trimming trees or cutting grass versus someone that wants to put on a new roof who doesn't want really any rain. But you can mow grass through like some light rain or even like, uh, you know, putting down pavement and things like that. You really don't want much rain with that because you need it to dry. But, you know, Mm -hmm. certain projects you can get away with some rain, but other, uh, you know, clients, they they can't have any rain. So it's, you know, it's either, uh, you know, like you said, Mike, how sensitive is their project that they're going to be doing or task that day? Yeah, it's it's that added layer of of not only understanding the weather and and, and giving a, an accurate forecast, but it's understanding the clients right. and kind of bridging the gap between weather and decision support. That's what we're really and, and they'll call actually about that, which is helpful to us as a meteorologist. And we're trying to forecast for that area. You know, I, you know, some somebody might call and say, "Yeah, I got a I got a big pavement a big paving project tomorrow." You know, when is this rain actually going to get in here? You know, is there enough time for it to dry? Or you know, uh, we're going to be tearing up a roof uh, for the next three days. Can we? Can we basically expect all dry weather? Because even a thunderstorm, when you expect a three-day stretch of dry weather, could really throw a wrench into that uh, when you got half of a roof on a house down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's never good. Um, <laughs> client, clients don't like a, an empty roof, an uh, no. open roof with a thunderstorm. Uh, that's <laughs> right. never a good combination. And uh, one thing that we didn't even touch on, because it's not technically severe weather, I would say, um, even though it's very dangerous, is lightning. Yeah. Um, You know, a lot of our clients deal are concerned about lightning, whether it's a stadium or or some other venue or 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 a sports team or something like that, or even a school. Um, So. Rob, I mean, I know we have some pretty good techniques. Can we kind of give them a little taste uh, of what we're thinking about when we're uh, trying to uh, give some lightning notifications out there? Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of our clients care about lightning in general. And then we actually have clients that we specifically provide heads ups for lightning ahead of the lightning. So they'll literally (laughs) get a call or a text from us um, before it's ever struck ground and they ever hear that boom how do we do that right well let's not give away too many secrets now i won't give away too many secrets (laughs) but i will say we've become experts in predicting lightning which seems like a weird thing to predict um but lightning if you understand it and you understand how it forms and why it forms there's some radar techniques that we can use to to assess how likely lightning is or is not a lot of it has to do with What's going on in the colder parts of the atmosphere, which typically is like 15, 20,000 feet in the sky, depending on what's going on up there, clues us into how likely lightning might be and how short of a time it might take until it actually strikes. And, and we'll provide this consultation and we'll provide these heads up notifications to clients across our, our, our corridor that we service. Our, our clients truly appreciate that because it you know, comes down to safety. They have players on the field. Um, they may have fans in the stands. I mean, I know right. we're in, uh, you know, still with the COVID pandemic, but, um, you know, once fan, fans do return, they have to stay safe. They can't keep fans in the, <laughs> out there when 
it's it's an always thing too. It's you know the obvious ones are when um, you know there's a big game happening or a concert, but but there's also all this setup before and takedown mm-hmm. after. So like these 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 venues that we're servicing are constantly outdoors or maybe there's Mm -hmm. not a soccer game going on. There's a soccer camp going on. Um, and there's tons of, you know, young ones out there playing. So it really is, um, you know, almost an everyday sort of concern for these clients. And and we're always monitoring that for them. And this might be more of a concern heading into this uh, particular, uh, spring and summer in 2021, because people may be opting for more outdoor type venues to, you know, stay safe from, uh, you know, the virus. So, um, it, it could be a pretty interesting year with the outdoor stuff. I mean, even schools, uh, with their graduations, a lot of them try to have it outside. Yeah. I mean, in general, it's probably good just to, to brush up on your lightning safety, uh, knowledge, just because there's a, there's an increased chance you're going to be outside this year a little bit more than past years as well. So, um, for sure. And, and, uh, you know, lightning is definitely, uh, one of the, um, higher causes of death. I believe it's the third leading cause of storm deaths in the U S. Um, hmm. so it, it's not something to be taken lightly. It's not, there's not a lot of deaths with them, but there's certainly uh, enough that we need to be aware of it and, um, you know, take the proper precautions. Yeah. And I just got to end with one story of, of lightning. Uh, uh is this your golf course story? No, no, oh, okay. No. It doesn't have to do with myself. That that's where I put myself in a okay, bad situation. We, we talked about our, our lightning uh, close, uh, close. Uh, yeah, that was on the golf course. Close, close calls. Yeah, well, I, think we're all, I think we're and, all guilty you know. of that. Um, but uh, man, I got to tell you, um, there were building a house in my neighborhood. I think it was about a year or two ago, and there was a guy, a construction worker, sitting on the peak of a roof when a thunderstorm was moving in. And I'm watching the lightning, you know, bolts in the background. And I'm just thinking to myself, how long is it going to take for this guy to get off this roof? Because I'm getting nervous. <laughs> and, and I was almost like put in a position where I felt like I should do something. Your meteorological because, duties, right? Right. And, uh, you know, the whole, uh, you know, safety of the public and all that kind of stuff that we, uh, you know, are, are that's our responsibility. Um, but, uh, man, I was like this close to just getting, you have to get down and nobody, nobody would have knew who I was or nothing. I wish I would have had my, uh, my, uh, hard hat for my old construction, uh, inspection days. Cause that would have well, made me have brought your essential employee card and be like, Hey, I'm a, I'm a meteorologist, you know, there you it's go. Okay. I'm could've. a remote driver. <laughs> Very nice. I like that reference. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that was a, a situation. Luckily, the guy got down. I was like just about to walk over and be like, look, like I have nothing to do here, guys, but you got to get out of here. <laughs> you yeah. got to get off that roof. You know, the wind's blowing, the bolts are coming. But um, Rob, I got to say, I think um, I think we covered about all of it here of, Oof. you know, some yeah. severe weather and flooding and, and what uh, WeatherWorks does to prepare for the severe weather season. Um, so I really, hey, thanks a lot for coming on the program. I thought it yeah, was really and, interesting. And since Rob was so slighted on this, uh, maybe we'll bring him back first again. I won't hold my breath. I know you got <laughs> another 10 people you want to get on before me again. You know, whenever yeah. my turn is, let me know. But uh, it's, well, it's been fun, guys. I appreciate it. Um, so. That's about it for this uh, week's episode. Remember, uh, we're always on social media. Find WeatherWorks on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, um, YouTube. We're all in those places. 
We'll have a new podcast every two weeks. So please come back and listen to the episodes. A lot of interesting stuff in there, guys. You uh, have a, probably a choice of 20 some odd episodes now um, from our podcast to listen to. And we're on Apple. We're on Google. We're on Spotify. We're on Stitcher. All those places you get your podcast, you'll find the Weather Lounge. And as always, if you have any suggestions for this podcast, Send them over to weatherlounge at weatherworksinc.com. Until then, we'll see you next time.